Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget, if you listen to our podcast, to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the RCPE Training Members Committee Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr Johnny Bargett and I am an acute and general internal medicine registrar in South East Scotland. Today I am joined by... I'm Dr Johnny Guckian, so you've got two Johnnies. Uh, I'm a dermatology registrar in Leeds in West Yorkshire and I'm also the co-chair of the RCPE Trainees and Members Committee as well as wearing a few other hats, including podcast associate editor for the British Journal Dermatology. So welcome, Johnny. This episode is all about dermatology. And I'm keen to start off by asking, before we got, get on to anything else, why are we talking about dermatology? Why are we doing an episode of Clinical Conversations about um, skin disease? Because it's the most important specialty, of course. It's your most important organ. Basically, dermatology is everywhere. And I get really visceral responses sometimes when I tell people that I do dermatology or when I was at medical school telling people I wanted to do dermatology because I really think it polarizes people. More often than not, I tell people that, so I, I hear from people that I just don't know enough dermatology or I'm scared of rashes. Now, that's quite unsettling for me because a rash is the most common reason someone attends their GP. There are more dermatology conditions than in every other specialty put together. I think there's over 2,000. Okay, yes, quite a lot of them will be eponymous names named after old white dudes, but they are incredibly important. Melanoma has got a huge consideration of morbidity and mortality. And yes, emergency dermatology conditions do exist. So lots to cover and lots of important things to consider. Great. That's a great introduction. Um, really, I'm keen to just get on to the, the meat of the topic, Johnny. In your experience as being on call dermatology registrar, what are the most common calls that you receive from the wards, or the general medical wards, or other wards, or acute medicine, as you said? Yeah. So my two main sources, well, probably actually three main sources of calls come from three different areas. They come from the, the wards, as you say, but also from A&E and from pediatrics. Obviously, we're not necessarily going to get into the pediatric side of things today, but there is some overlap. And the types of calls I get sometimes differ depending on the source. From the acute wards, by far the most common referrals I get are actually flares of chronic conditions, which the patient has been having or maybe not managing all that well uh, at home. More specifically, you guessed it, the usuals, eczema and psoriasis. So it's nothing particularly you know, exciting or sexy as a condition, but these are things that are not always managed very well. So we are often able to help there. I would also add that from any, probably the most common referrals I get aren't, again, the most emergency things. There, it's usually actually urticaria or uh, drug reactions. But of course, we do get the odd drug reaction from the wards as well, depending on the different type of ward we're dealing with. In my experience, I have 
encountered a lot of different presentations of acute dermatology conditions like you've just um, described, Johnny, on mm. a background of chronic conditions. And when I've had to phone for advice, I've always thought, what are the things that the dermatologists want to know? And am I describing this correctly? By that, I mean, you know, the pattern of the disease and the type of rash or lesion that I'm seeing. And I guess that's something that you find helpful. I'm keen to just sort of take it back to basics. And mm. if we could just sort of get an insight into what kind of things are helpful when getting that phone call. So I would say that, first of all, every dermatologist is different. Just open with that. So there may be some dermatologists who would disagree with me on this, but I very much like people to say what they see. I don't like overcomplicating terminology and language sometimes because I feel that it makes people slightly intimidated and get a little bit confused with, with some of the language that they're using. If I had a quid for every time someone said that they saw a macula papula rash because they really wanted to seem clever in front of dermatology, then I would be a very rich man indeed. Really what I want to hear is, where is the rash? You'd be surprised how many people don't tell you where the rash actually is. What colour is it? What shape is it? What's it doing? How it's impacting the patient? And crucially, just like any referral, why do I need to know about this now? If I'm out of hours and I'm getting called about this, why is this urgent? What has changed for the patient? You'd be surprised by how many calls I get for long-standing eczema or psoriasis that really hasn't changed all that much, but I'm getting called out of hours about it. And really, they could do with a decent review, but that doesn't necessarily need to be out of hours. So it's really common sense stuff. It's not necessarily all that complicated. I guess a lot of this is pattern recognition to a certain extent, but what I really appreciate more than anything else when I'm seeing these patients is that often it's just going back to the basics of taking a good structured history. I was just wondering if you had any hints or tips for taking a focused dermatological history when you're, when you're seeing patients present with their flare of, say, their, their atopic eczema or their, their psoriasis. Absolutely. It's just, again, a specialty. Um, history is key. We sometimes get distracted by pictures in dermatology, but I really find the history is so important. For me, the most useful and interesting data that I want to gather when I'm, when I'm speaking to a patient and getting the history, uh, if they've got a chronic condition, is how are they using their creams or ointments? What are they using? How often are they using it? It's a bit like an alcohol history. When you ask someone alcohol history, you don't just take the first thing that they say. You, will, you go into specific details. You say, what, you know, what are you drinking? How often are you drinking it? Do you specifically drink this? Do you drink that? Do you drink that? It's the same with topicals. It's like, okay, well, what topicals are you using? What emollients are you using? When are you using your emollients? Is it night and day? Or is the patient at school, for example, at work? How are they managing that? You know, if they say they're doing it four times a day, are you really telling me you really always do it that way? Or is it maybe a couple of times a week you're doing it four times a day? That's really important. Then we come into topical steroids, which is a whole other domain within itself and relatively controversial at times, but how are you using the topical steroids? If you explain fingertip units to them, are they following that or are they doing too little? I generally find that topical steroid underuse is significantly more common than overuse. And then finally, what topical steroids are they using? You know, where are they using them? Are they putting betonavate or heaven forbid, dermavate on their face by accident? Or are they using hydrocortisone on their body, which is essentially homeopathic? So these details are really important because often the management has already been discussed several times 
but maybe just not explained effectively. Just chucking a bit of Betnovate at a patient and saying, there you go, do that, isn't enough. You need to really set a patient down because it takes effort and time for a patient to engage with your topical management plan. So that requires effort and time on your part as the clinician to explain that. That's really helpful. I guess just so that the listeners know what what you're talking about, Johnny, one of the things I'd like to touch on is just the topical therapies that you said. Mm. They were, you know, creams, ointments, emollients, lotions. And it took Mm. me a wee while to get to the, the level of understanding about what each of these were and just in doing a refresher on this before this podcast. And I was just wondering if you could just shed some light on what exactly they are and does it matter and is it important? Why is it important? Yeah, so I'll touch on emollients first. There's not really much good evidence that one emollient is better than another, okay? We generally, in dermatology, tend to prefer ointments to creams. The difference is creams are water-based and ointments are oil-based. The idea is that ointments will sit in the skin and they will moisturize for longer. The problem is, is that patients don't generally, I am generalizing here, they don't always like ointments. Just imagine, you know, popping on a thick lard over your, over your body before you put your clothes on in the morning going to work. It's not the most pleasant experience. And then go, having to go to the bathroom halfway through the day and reapply again. You're not always going to get someone to do that. So creams are, are often better tolerated by patients, but then they do require more reapplications. What I tend to say to my patients is, the best emollient is the one you're going to use. So I really encourage your patients to be honest with me so we can both get to the bottom of which cream or ointment might be best. Now, within emollients, there are a host of different options. And again, no one is better than the other. You often see dermatologists using CeraVe, which is a over-the-counter cream which you can buy rather than anything we can prescribe, which, yeah, a lot of dermatologists tend to like that. But when you're getting into the actual nitty-gritty of patients who have long-term conditions like eczema and psoriasis, I often start with hydromol, hydromol four times a day, and in areas that are affected. Hydromol is thick, it's like very much just like lard, and you can also wash with it. I also like Dermal 500 to wash with. Dermal 500 is like a lotion, and you can use it to wash with, but also you can use it as an emollient just throughout the day as well. There's, there's a whole load of others, and we'd be here all day talking about them, including epiderm, E45, zero base, etc. But I think the general principle is that when I have a patient for the first time coming to me for topicals, for emollients more specifically, I will often prescribe them an emollient pack. And I just encourage them just to try as much as they can and see what they like, because the best emollient is the one they're going to use. So that's emollients. I'm more than happy to talk about topical steroids as well and similar agents if you want me to. I think we could do that. But let's make it interesting. I'm going to talk yeah. about a case. I am going to talk about patients that I saw not too long ago who came into the acute medical unit through the GP admission unit. He was in his 30s. He was doing a course at a local university. He was a mature student. And he'd come in essentially with severe redness over his face with pain around his face, which had been building up over the last couple of weeks, really. He was now finding really generally difficult to leave the house. You know, he didn't want people to see him. And he was finding it difficult to eat and drink now because it was sore around his lips. And he didn't really want to talk because he had such such pain around his mouth. And it turns out when I, you know, you take the history from him, 
He's got a diagnosis of eczema and he has been seen by his GP prior to this consultation from the GP on this occasion. And he's been on therapy of hydrocortisone steroid, which he's been applying to his face, but is worried about taking it because he thinks it's getting worse. When I saw him, when I was taking the history, I noted that his skin was flaking and it looked dry. And there were potentially little dotted lesions around his cheeks, but generally the rash was spread over his chest, all over his arms, especially in the flexural areas. And that had made its way down into his uh, abdomen. And that was the examination findings really that just of dry, pruritic, scoriated skin. He was really reluctant to take further steroids, but he was slightly tachycardic because he was really quite dehydrated and he just didn't want to get out of the bed. He just wanted to stay in his bed. So that's kind of the initial impression I got from that. He wasn't quite fit for discharge, but I think hopefully we could have got a plan from dermatology after starting some some topical therapies of which I had an idea about, but I just wanted to make sure that we weren't missing anything like infection. And that was my, my general thinking was, was this eczema herpeticum or was some added bacterial infection on the background of flare of eczema? So that's kind of the case. What are your thoughts on that, Johnny? So loads to think about there. Interesting case, quite a, I wouldn't say common, but you know, I've seen quite a few cases similar over the last couple of years as a reg. Eczema herpeticum is certainly something to absolutely consider and definitely worth admission for a patient who is relatively young with a background of eczema and crucially with these herpetic lesions, these, these vesicles and blisters and postural lesions as well. Now, there's a lot of blistering conditions, but whenever you come to younger people, that herpetic viral infection is on, on top of eczema is one of the more common ones. The first thing I would tend to consider there, there's a lot, but I would just ask, does the patient have any history of immunosuppression at all? So he isn't on any regular steroids and has never used any therapies like tacrolimus or any other kind of immunosuppressant drug. Sure. And so if you, just as a tip, if you're seeing someone, patient who's a bit older or who has a history which is consistent with eczema herpeticum, then you would definitely want to consider any cause due to immunosuppression or potentially even something like underlying malignancy. I've seen a couple of patients with underlying malignancy who had a delirium associated with eczema herpeticum. Some of that was dehydration, but patients can be sick. You also would want to consider with eczema herpeticum, a major thing is whether they have involvement around the eyes. So ophthalmology would need to be involved, but even just as a quick check over. Now, before even considering their herpeticum, what we want to, to do is clarify a bit about the eczema because eczema is a bit of an umbrella term um, for a number of different conditions. Atopic dermatitis, of course, is the most common and would really have a history of someone with erythema, xerosis, uh, excoriations in their flexural surfaces, and they would usually be atopic. So have a history of asthma and hay fever. Now, most of us will know how to do the basic management of, of eczema, However, there are other conditions that you might want to consider as well that come under the eczema banner. So if you have someone who's got very flaky skin, particularly on the face, including the scalp, ears, so anterior scalp as well, and the back of the neck, eyelids, you might want to consider something like seborrheic dermatitis, and which again is something you can get in patients who are immunosuppressed, or it has an unusual kind of relationship with neurological conditions. 
So something like Parkinson's patients often have history of seborrheic dermatitis. Then we have other causes of eczema type rashes in the face. So we have contact dermatitis, specifically allergic contact dermatitis can often present on, on the face. And if we have someone with eczema who presents with a facial distribution, often we will send them for patch testing. As a bit of an aside, just the difference between types of contact dermatitis. So we have allergic contact dermatitis and irritant contact dermatitis. Irritant contact dermatitis is exposure to an irritant over and over and over again. And for example, the classic case is a hairdresser or a clinician who's washing their hands all the time, or someone works for a bar and washing their hands all the time, and their hands are exposed to water, which is the irritant. And it's got quite a sharp cutoff with lots of little vesicles and erythema on the hands. Now, allergic contact dermatitis is an allergic reaction to a specific allergen, which can be often a type of preservative or fragrance, which can be very random or can be a metal, for example. And clinically, these are actually quite indistinct. And therefore, the best way to test for these would be patch testing, which involves popping a few dots of different allergens on the patient's back, leaving it for a few days, and then coming back and seeing if there's been a reaction. And that's how you tell if there's allergic contact dermatitis rather than irritant. The other thing to say is just that a, a standard atopic dermatitis, which is driven by aeroallergens, so things in the air like grass pollen or similar, often are predicated to the face. And that can affect some of the treatments which we would use. So facial dermatitis is, a facial eczema is less responsive to light therapy. Uh, for example, phototherapy. So some of these things will be kind of rushing through the back of my mind. And then the final thing that I'd want to mainly um, consider, as well as everything I've talked about so far and their, their adherence to topical treatments, et cetera, and the impact on, the, on their quality of life, would be the extent of the erythema. So are we talking about erythroderma, for example, as it's spreading down to the, the legs, it's covering 70% of the body or more? I'm pretty you know, loose when it comes to you know, being wary for erythroderma. Uh, you know, I don't, don't draw down to see if there's exactly 70%, even if it's sub-erythroderma, which is, you know, probably about 50 to 70%, the management is still fairly similar and you still want to be moving around the room fairly quickly to get them sorted. So if it's a big coverage, big impact, and not responsive to kind of your initial treatments, those are the things that would be making me more wary. So that's really helpful. And I guess we were quite lucky, Johnny, in that we had access to medical photography. Yes. And I'm sure you know that that is gold. For this. <laughs> and so before we'd even seen this patient, he'd already had his medical photography, which was great. And we spoke to the dermatologist and they felt that there could be some possible evidence of bacterial infection and they weren't sure. So they advised to start empirical Flucloxacillin, so for soft tissue infection, but not to refrain from treating with acyclovir for eczema herpeticum. And then they advised a range of topical steroids. And so, in view of that, what were your thoughts? And what kind of steroid regimen would you would you recommend in the situation if if indeed there is this ambiguity about whether it's bacterial or superadded viral? as well. Sure. There's not a great deal of consensus in some of this, but the general principle is that if you think that something is, if you're very convinced it's that there's that herpeticum element, then you should hang fire on some of the stronger topical steroids. 
if you're not sure, bear in mind that these are often the underlying cause is the eczema. So the eczema is treating. They need emollients regardless. But in, in terms of your topical steroid regime for an eczema on the face, hydrocortisone, as you mentioned before, 1% can be useful. But if you've got it, you know, if, if, it's, if it's brought someone into hospital, you want to break out the Umovate. And Umovate is about the max you can really use on the face regularly. So hydrocortisone, you might want to use around the eyes. And then you can use Umovate for the rest of the face. Or just, just if they're unwell, use Umovate. In terms of your general topical, your topical steroid regime, Again, this will vary from person to person. What I was taught when I was in as a fellow in Newcastle and getting started off in, in dermatology was that you don't want to faff around. You want to basically eczema is caused by associated with inflammation. This is inflammatory change that is causing the erythema, the pain, etc. So you need to switch that inflammation off. Now, patients will be nervous about using topical steroids and they don't want to use too much because they don't want to thin their skin. And GPs and many other physicians share the same concerns. However, as I said before, often that leads to undertreatment. What I would reassure listeners is that using topical steroids initially, effectively, and for a short period, relatively short period of time, and then stopping will not cause the skin to thin the vast majority of the cases. Okay. So what I would tend to do is, let's say someone's got eczema on the body and on the face, I'll use Umovate maybe twice a day for a week, then once a day for one to two weeks, then alternate days for another week or two, and then as required. Great. That's really helpful. Yeah. And then do similar benefit for the body. So generally the impression I got was that generally speaking, unless it's severe, you want to use the weaker potency of steroids on the face. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Because if you used anything in Betnovate or Dermavate in the face, you'll melt the face. It's not ideal. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really helpful. And so that's kind of the advice that we were given for this patient and he was successfully discharged from the UK medical unit with this therapy. The, the patient was happy, but from what you're saying, it sounds like prescription is one thing, but it's the education. Yes. How to use it is really important. The other thing I would just mention is that if you're going to have someone who's regularly using topical steroids on their face, particularly around their eyes, you need to mention that one long-term complication or potential side effects could be cataracts, which is something we don't always explain very well with, with patients, who, particularly in the community. So that's something that, that is, is important to mention because I have seen some patients who are using topical steroids for a long time since they're very young and they develop cataracts. That's really important. And I think it's maybe overlooked, perhaps. Mm. The thing about this patient is, I guess, from a follow-up perspective, is this something that you would want to see in the clinic or is yeah. this something that can be safely discharged back to the GP, but with monitoring from the GP? So every unit will be different in terms of their follow-up structures, but in Leeds, what we have is an emergency clinic. What I, and that's the easiest way for the on-call registrar to be able to see the patient in like the next few weeks because they're kind of booked ad hoc. What I would do is I would, you know, this is somewhat a patient who's been in hospital and potentially admitted. They should probably get some, definitely get some follow-up. And just consider a time frame with the patient. And I wouldn't see them too soon because you want to give it enough time for your treatment to, to be effective. Great, great. We were describing the rash. And I guess just for our listeners again, just so that we know what we're talking about. I know that you said mm. you want to know what you're seeing rather than what the term is. But how would you differentiate a macule from a papule, from a nodule? Mm -hmm. What would you use in your, your clinical assessment? To, to yeah, so a macule is a small lesion which is less than a, a centimeter and is 
erythematous and flat, crucially flat, papules raised. Then you've got patches, which is more than a centimetre, which are flat, and plaques or nodules are raised and more than a centimetre. A plaque is like a plateau, so they sound quite similar, which we get in psoriasis, and it's like a, so it's, it's like flattened off at the top. That's great. And again, just put with pustules, vesicles, and bullae, um, yep. most of our listeners will probably know how to differentiate that. But just, just so it's clear, could you help them? Yeah, of course. It's just about what's in them, first few. So it's uh, vesicles, uh, which are a cardinal feature of eczema. They are basically papules that are filled with fluid. And pustules are papules that are filled with pus. So they'll be associated with things that are inflammatory or infective. And bullae are basically big vesicles. That's great. I once was asked to aspirate a bulla and send mm-hmm. the for analysis by one of the dermatologists specifically to look for a new viral source. Is that, is that something that you routinely do in, the, in, this, in someone who presents with blistering skin disease? There is a wide range of potential blistering skin conditions. Now, I wouldn't necessarily always tend to aspirate for sending off like the fluid sample. It's more to de-roof the blisters because when you de-roof the blisters, depending on the, on the type of blister, it forms a kind of a natural dressing over the top. And that can help prevent an infection and is also more comfortable for the patient as well. It can also be very satisfying for the doctor doing it too. So that's, that's really useful just to sort of get an insight into that. And I guess we're, now we're talking about blistering skin disease. Mm-hmm. And some of our listeners will know about pemphigus and pemphigoid. What, mm-hmm. what are the differences between the two? What, what are they? Okay. Being able to tell the difference between pemphigus and pemphigoid is something that stresses people out throughout their career spectrum. Basically, the easiest way to think about it is that pemphigoid, ending in D, has deep, tense blisters, which do not tend to rupture easily. Pemphigus is S for superficial, and that has superficial flaccid blisters, which do rupture easily. These are both diseases of the elderly and therefore are associated with a high mortality. This is usually because of comorbidities, which coexist, and the fact that these patients are treated with, top- with oral prednisolone, which in itself increases mortality and morbidity. And the patients often, if cause of death or morbidity, would be sepsis, getting in through the blisters. Now, pemphigoid is less severe than pemphigus, and that makes sense because pemphigoid has deep, tense blisters, which you know bugs can't get in quite as easily. And pemphigus has got the more flaccid blisters, which is more prone to infection. They can be quite difficult to differentiate, so we do we can do some investigations. We can do pemphigoid antibodies, and we can send off biopsies punch biopsies, and for h e and immunofluorescence. And I've been surprised by some things which I was sure on the leg was a fluid-filled blisters due to just general fluid overload in the legs when it actually turns out to be pemphigoid. And the final thing with pemphigoid is that it can also be associated with an itch precursor. So they often get a bit of an itch and then the blisters appear. And you want to look in the patient's mouth because oral mucosa is an area which can be affected by pemphigoid or pemphigus and can impact quality of life and mortality based on causing dehydration or malnutrition. That's really helpful. So moving on from blistering skin disease, Johnny, I, I guess one of the things I'm really getting from, from your, your chat about dermatology here is that dermatology is, is still an art. It's, it's all about the history. It's all about the examination. It's all about the, the information gathering. And then we do relevant investigations, and then we refer to our guidelines. And one of the things that I'm keen to ask about is, are there any specific things in history that you really pay attention to? And I guess more particularly about drug history. Mm. 
So drug history can be really challenging, especially, I mean, obviously that's incredibly important if you've got a drug eruption, because there are a variety of different drug eruptions and the timing is a bit different for each condition. And I often have to go and look it up myself because, you know, some drug reactions like drug hypersensitivity syndrome or DRESS syndrome, as it used to be called, it can take a good while, a good few days to weeks to actually emerge. And so that means you have to really go back and get down into the details with the patient as to what has been taken and what, and what could be the causative agent. Because often these patients who've got severe drug eruptions or not even severe drug eruptions, just the kind of your common drug eruptions, which can look very scary to the, your, your average clinician and indeed the patient. Often these patients are on multiple medications. They're inpatients for another reason. For example, I often see these patients in oncology and hematology, and they're on a lot of funky drugs there. But it often goes back to the basic principles that the most common causes are antibiotics and anti-epileptics are other ones. Exceptrin is, is my current kind of nemesis. That is, that's my, holding the record for the patients I've seen ca- uh, causing drug eruptions. It can be a real challenge whenever you've got a rash and you're not really sure if it's something like it's a, like a vasculitis and they can be caused by medications, including antibiotics, but then they can also be caused by infection and then you need the antibiotic for that. So that does take some really tough clinical decision-making. And that's definitely when, if I'm on call and getting that kind of call, I'm calling my consultant just to get a bit of advice, kind of wisdom uh, on how to best approach those. That's, um, you know, great pearls there, Johnny. I think that leads us into really what, you know, what I really worry about is when the patient comes in with rash that's all over their body and their pain in their skin is the reason why they've come in and they've got sloughing of skin on their body and around their mouth and their eyes. What are you thinking about here? What concerns you? So, I mean, when you started talking about redness all over the body, I thought, oh, could it be, could it be erythroderma? But then you started to mention the, the sloughing around the mouth and around the eyes. So you're talking about desquamation around the oral mucosa. And as soon as, you know, any, anyone who's done kind of uh, postgraduate exams at any time recently will recognize uh, the telltale signs there of Stevens-Johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrolysis. To clarify, these are both the same condition. They're just different uh, levels of, on a spectrum. SJS is tends to be less than 10% or less involvement. Toxic epidermal necrolysis is over 30% involvement. And there's kind of ambiguity in between. I'm basically, as I'm at home, I'm getting called about that. I am picking up my keys and getting into my car because in dermatology, with you using non-resident on calls, it's great. But yeah, I'm heading in to see the patient, even if it's a just a query, because I want to see how sick is this patient. And I'm wanting to get cracking and pretty, pretty quickly. And a lot of that is about getting the good history from the patient. And that involves me speaking to the patient directly rather than doing it via one or two different people. Yeah, lots to think about. I remember looking after a patient like this in medical HDU and he needed essentially 24-hour nursing care with real Mm. attention to to his Mm. pressure areas. And what was really clear is that he couldn't eat because he had stomatitis. He needed a flexi seal because of the amount of diarrhea that he's having. And he had severe dyspeptic symptoms with mm. um, really painful eyes with conjunctival erosion. And, and just in view of all that, what do you do for patients that have these signs? What is it that really alters their outcome? 
So in terms of the best thing you could possibly do for these patients is find out what drug's causing it and stop it ASAP. But it's also important to bear in mind that sometimes it's not always a medication. It can be caused by infection, including herpes, mycoplasma, or Legionella. Now, you mentioned a few different specific things, including oral symptoms. Now, the things I tend to just use are chlorhexidine mouthwash and Diflam mouthwash like four times a day. And, you know, there's a bit of relief there. P- appropriate analgesia. So we're talking about the common sense sort of stuff here. Like a lot of these, this management is common sense, supportive management and compassionate and holistic healthcare. So appropriate analgesia, making sure they got VTE prophylaxis because these patients are going to be really at risk of VTE given they're often immobile for a long time. They're essentially popped in a spacesuit to help protect them from infection. They're filled with fluids because they're dehydrated. And then we, you know, we will consider various intensive topical regime. I tend to talk about SJS and TEN as proof of the importance of your skin. And whenever I teach like my, my students or my junior trainees, basically your skin does three main things. That is protect you from dehydration, protect you from infection and regulate your temperature. When you get SJS or TEN and it's similar to erythroderma, you're not really doing any of those things effectively because you've got skin failure. And so that's where the supportive regime comes from. So they get antibiotics, antivirals, they get full of fluid and early escalation to ICU and they get thermoregulated. That's really helpful advice. I guess the the, the key advice for, for patients like this, and I guess it just really highlights how important it is that these patients are in the right environment. Mm. So I'm conscious of how much time we have. I'd just like to sort of discuss one more common presentation that comes into the AMU and then maybe just touch on other sort of rare things that you might just occasionally see and just be useful to have an awareness. Yeah, of course. I'm just conscious that, that obviously there, there is a lot more to the management of Stephen Johnson TEN and many of the other things I've mentioned so far. So please do not see my advice so far as exhaustive uh, because there's all kinds of topical regimes, investigations and things that should be done. But most tertiary centres at least will have, for example, for TEN and SJS, they will have protocols from dermatology to follow. And if they don't, then this should be to dermatology about potentially um, creating one because they're really helpful. And the patients are often managed in specialist ICU or burned units. And just finally on that, um, I'm aware of a grading system called SCORE10. Is, yes. is that something that you use? Yes. So it's essentially to look at mortality and the score is there's different points. You get one point for each of age, heart rate, um, urea, glucose, bicarb, sort of percentage of epidermal detachment. So if it's over 10% and history of malignancy. And essentially, if you, the more points you get, the higher mortality you've got with five points being over 90% mortality. So we're not messing about here. This is a, these are sick patients. So that's a really useful tool there. So another case, a recent patient I saw in the acute medical unit had presented with itchy, very widespread rash over her abdomen. She was in her 40s and she was a hairdresser. And she arrived into the department with her partner and they'd seen their GP and they were advised that she needed steroids. She didn't have any knowledge of any exposures. Um, She always wore gloves when she was doing her her work. But the rash was now getting more intensely itchy and it was raised in her skin. And it did have a distribution where some areas looked like 
they were more raised than others and that kind of fit in with the time frame that she was describing. What are your thoughts on that and um, specifically um, what, what's going through your mind? So when people mention intense itch, there's really two, two or three things I think about. The first thing is dermatitis herpetiformis, which is a cutaneous manifestation of celiac disease. And that usually presents in extensor surfaces, but not always, is blistering usually, but not always. Sometimes it's just papules and erythema. But patients tell you they want to scratch their skin off. It's the itchiest thing they've ever had. That is the first thing I would consider. And you're looking at a wider history, history of change in bowel habit, diet. Um, interestingly, it's more common in Celtic populations. So I don't know if there's from our homeland, if, if there's more, more patients with dermatitis epidermis because celiac is more common there. And for that, it's essentially managing diagnosing the celiac through the various ways that we do that and gluten-free diet. The other thing I consider you don't want to miss in a patient uh, who has intense itch is scabies. Now, you might think your 40-year-old patient who's a hairdresser might not be your common patient to get it, but anybody can get scabies. And you can learn that the hard way when you get scabies from patients for not realizing until a bit late. Scabies is more common in patients who are in institutional settings. So hospitals, care homes, students. There is one cohort of people who traverse across all of those different areas, and those are medical students. So uh, lots of medical students get scabies. Usually most years have a breakout once a year. And you're looking in the interdigital spaces, the finger webbing, you're looking for burrows. I have seen a really interesting case of crusted scabies, which was a patient who was homeless and he had a history of HIV and he had AIDS with this. So he had a lot of other things going on, but he had a lot of self-neglect and he had this fine granola-like scale which is a, my consultant's description, not mine, because I can't look at granola the same way since. But that was really across his legs and his arms, and particularly in the interdigital spaces. And as, as a patient I saw just at the start of the pandemic on a night shift before I did dermatology, I was in C, uh, CT2 at the time, and I just looked at him and said, he's got scabies, he needs permethrin. And honestly, after, I think I saw him two weeks later when he was on the ID ward for something else, and he looked like a new man. So... Obviously, that's a bit more extreme than your patient, but scabies is something that causes intense itch. And finally, the last thing I would just consider for just itch is eczema, because eczema is very itchy. That's really helpful. Just sort of wrapping it up now, in terms of just like the, the general presentations that you might find with systemic diseases, mm-hmm. such as tuberculosis or HIV or diabetes or immunosuppression, what kind of things might you be on the lookout for in this kind of cohort patients obviously there's a few conditions there but are there there any key things that you'd be be alert for in in these patient groups yeah i mean i find some of these are more mrcp conditions than real life a lot of the time obviously it depends on where you are i'm in leeds i've not done any time in the tb clinic yet so i've not i've personally not seen a lot of patients with lupus vulgaris or scrofoderma kind of cases and you know on the id wards patients the most common presentations of patients with HIV are actually your more standard immunosuppressed conditions like seborrheic dermatitis, as I mentioned earlier. I've seen a few pityriasis vesicolor as well, as well as a most contagiosum. So these are common things which are actually relatively easily treated. But the, if it's an immunosuppressed patient, your main basis of management is about trying to fix the immunosuppression. So if they're not concordant with the uh, with antiretrovirals or they're not effectively working, then then you get better control over that, similar for diabetes. It's also worth considering that something we've not talked about is vulval dermatology, which is a whole area in itself, and that's actually kind of a lot, a lot of the times poorly managed. 
I've seen some patients with anyone else supposed to say poorly controlled diabetes, but diabetes that's not been kind of of optimum management potentially, who have had a lot of the vaginal candidiasis and present with the kind of a, oh, is this a, a lichen sclerosis picture? And they take quite a good history, clear examination, clinical photography and monitoring, bobbing and re-review for those patients. That is all really fascinating, to be honest. I, I, I didn't appreciate how complex dermatology is, Johnny. <laughs> um, Neither did I when I signed up. But, but fascinating. So we've talked about loads there. We've talked about the patient presenting with severe eczema with possible bacterial or eczema herpeticum. We've talked a bit about the key things that you want to look about in the drug history and the history. We've talked about blistering skin disease. We've talked about Stephen Johnson's and toxic abdominal necrosis. And we've touched on DREZ. We've touched on the pruritic patient and erythroderma. And we've given the listeners a, a whistle-stop tour on lotions and emollients and steroid therapy and, and creams and ointments. There's so much more. There is. Uh, we, we just don't have the time for it. So just to wrap it up, what would your take-home points for the, learner, for the listeners and the learners be before we, we finish today, Johnny? I would say the first thing is don't be scared. Don't be scared of, of your patients. Don't be scared of the rash. Don't be scared to speak to us. And specifically, don't be scared of topical steroids because they are the basis of so many of our treatments. Dermatology is one of those, one of those specialties that there is diversity in presentation and diagnosis, but not necessarily diversity in management just yet. We're getting more biologics soon through, but we use a lot of topical steroids and effective topical management, appreciating the impact of the condition on your patient and working with them to have a shared decision-making plan to you know, be concordant with medication is essential. These are, these are things which um, we sometimes take for granted whenever it's just popping a pill, but giving clear instructions and making sure the patient is definitely following the plan and you're kind of following up in your end of the bargain as well is really key to the best outcomes for the patients. That is comprehensive. And <laughs> on that note, Johnny, I would like to say thank you. And once again, thank you for your time. And to our listeners, um, I hope you enjoyed this one. And please do remember to give us feedback on social media through Twitter and Instagram and the RCP website. Once again, Johnny, thank you very much. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to Clinical Conversations, then please go on to our website at events.rcpe.ac.uk to see what online symposia and evening medical updates you might be interested in. There are upcoming episodes that will be linked to the renal evening medical update on the 27th of September 2022 and the Edinburgh International Course in Medicine of the Older Adult on the 29th of September 2022. All the cases that were discussed in this episode were not real and were created for the pure purpose of providing educational content for you, our listeners. Thank you.